hopefully the last chilly morning of the year. That's mine, what I'm hoping for. This is the last, the last cold front that's behind us, um, or it will be in about 24 hours. That's my hope. All right, let's get started this morning by praying together. Let's pray. Um, Father, we're grateful for your kindness to us and our Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful for how you know our frame. You know that we are dust, and you are good to us. Um, you give us even uh, one day out of seven to rest, um, to rest in you, to rest in Christ, to rest from our labors, and to be gathered together as your people uh, for worship. And Father, we pray this morning that as we prepare our hearts for worship by um, studying again the, the words of John Calvin and meditating even on this great um, truth of our justification in Christ, that we would be encouraged in our faith uh, to grow to love you more. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our study of the Institutes of John Calvin. Um, this is a study we began some two months ago or so, and we were just taking part by part um, the, the sections of the Institutes. And the purpose here is, is the Institutes are almost certainly a book that you've heard of, perhaps, but maybe one that you've not read before. It is quite long. It is in two significant, substantial volumes. Um, it is dense at times. And so this is basically an introduction into the Institutes, not so much me summarizing the material, but actually giving you the material, um, selections of it at least, so that you can see the way that Calvin's mind works. You can see the reason that this book is remembered and, and loved even 500 years after its publication. Hopefully as an encouragement to your faith now, but perhaps also to encourage you to, to continue your study of, um, of theology on your own, even of Calvin's theology. Um, we began um, with this quote. We come back to it each week. Calvin says that nearly all the wisdom... You know, I'm going to switch, Mike. I think this one often does that when I use it. All right, Calvin begins this way. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. That is a quote that has stood the test of time because there is much truth in it. And I encourage you to meditate on it. Um, knowing yourself and knowing God, that is the sum of all wisdom, and they are intimately connected with one another. Um, Calvin then begun to talk, began to talk as he went through the, the institutes about uh, the way in which our knowledge of God is covered up. It's covered up by our sin and our ignorance. We actually smother the knowledge of God that he um, seeks to give to us in our rebellion against him. Um, we imagine God as we have fashioned him for ourselves in our own presumption. That is idolatry of the human race. Um, so what does God do in response to this idolatry? He sends us a redeemer. And this redeemer is one, as we're going to look at today, as we think about justification um, that is not someone that, that can be apart from us, far off from us, but to save us, he had to become like us. He had to become one of us, and we had to be bound to him. Um, we had to be united to him, actually. That doctrine of union with Christ is one that runs throughout the, the whole breadth of the Institutes from beginning to end. It is central for Calvin. It is central for us today. Um, and we're going to talk about that some this morning. Uh, first, Calvin says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. 
he had to become ours and to dwell within us so that we might grow into one body with him. Um, This is the way of salvation. This is the order of salvation, uh, union with our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit, of course, is the bond that connects us to Christ, that effectually unites um, Christ to us. Um, Last week, we began to think about the Christian life and sanctification and what that looks like. We talked about how uh, the, the goal of the Christian life is to confirm the adoption that we have received as sons, to grow in that holiness to which we are called, um, that our life might express Christ, who is the bond of our adoption. We're not to just grow in holiness in some abstract, generic way, but to grow in holiness in conformity to Jesus Christ, that our lives might look like him. He is the goal of the Christian life. Um, Calvin has this wonderful quote, um, sometimes we can be discouraged about Um, how much progress we're making in our Christian life, how much progress we're making in holiness. But for Calvin, um, he understands that. Um, He understands our limited capacities. And yet he says, let each one of us then proceed according to the measure of his puny capacity, puny capacity, and set out on the journey we have begun. Let us not despair at the slightness of our success, right? It might be halting, it might be one step forward, two step back, but with continuous effort, we must strive toward this end that we may surpass ourselves in goodness until we attain to goodness itself. And this is the journey of the Christian life. And it is summed up, according to Calvin, in this statement, self-denial, denial denial of self. This is what Christ um, called men to, and this is the goal of the Christian life. This is another way of talking about that holiness, is the denial of self. Um, Calvin um, also talks about how this, what this means in relationship to other human beings in terms of our growth and sanctification and holiness. It means to understand that whatever benefits we have been given by God have been entrusted to us on this condition, that they may be applied for the common good of the church. This, for Calvin, is a way of talking about love of neighbor. Um, holiness is not only love of God, it is also love of neighbor. And we must see ourselves then as stewards all the gifts that we possess have been bestowed by God to us and entrusted to us, not given to us, you know, just completely, ultimately entrusted to us on the condition that they be distributed for our neighbor's benefit. Our time, our money, our resources, our gifts, our talents, none of these are things that we possess in and of ourselves. They have been bestowed to us by God. They've been entrusted to us by God as stewards that we might um, use them for the good of others. Um, We are the stewards of everything God has conferred on us by which we are able to help our neighbor and are required to render account of our stewardship. We will render an account of the stewardship that we have exercised over what God has given us. I think that is a a good reminder for us um, as we think about our lives. Holiness is not only in putting off sin, it is also um, taking up righteousness. It is also taking up uh, love for others, love for God, Love for neighbor. It is the heart of the Christian life. Any questions about any of that before we jump in this morning now to justification? A brief summary. All right, this morning we are going to talk about justification. And I know that most of us here are Reformed and Presbyterian folk, and so we feel like we probably know all about this, right? We know about justification. We've heard about it um, a million times maybe. That's okay. This is um, such a precious and sweet truth of the gospel, um, our justification in Christ, our, the remission of our sins, the righteousness that he gives, that it is worth our time, certainly, to consider again, and perhaps even 
uh, to learn some new things because Calvin addresses this in his own way. So we'll start with this. Book 3, chapter 11. This is a wonderful chapter to read in its entirety if you felt um, called to do so. Justification by faith is the title. Place and meaning of the doctrine of justification, the first section. Christ was given to us, Calvin writes, by God's generosity, to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of him, we principally receive a double grace, namely that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven, instead of a judge, a gracious father. And secondly, that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blameness and purity of life. So we are reconciled to God, um, and we are given a, a gracious father, but we are also justified for holiness, as he mentioned already. This, i.e. justification, Calvin says, is the main hinge on which religion turns. This is something that is one of the core ideas of the Reformation, that justification is not a peripheral issue, it is a central issue. It is, as Calvin puts it, the main hinge on which religion turns. For unless you first of all grasp, Calvin says, what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build your piety toward God. So justification, you have to get justification right, is what Calvin's saying, or your foundation is not going to be solid, either in terms of how you think about your standing before God, um, in terms of your sin, um, and also in an ultimate way, and also even the, the foundation of your Christian life, um, the way that you build your piety toward God. Justification has to be right in order for you to proceed rightly in those areas. So now he's going to define what he means by justification. First, Calvin says, let us explain what these expressions mean. That man is justified in God's sight, and he is justified by faith or works. One of Calvin's arguments, and you see this in the time of the Reformation, is that there are basically two ways to be justified before God. By faith or by works. Those are your choices. You must choose wisely. He is said to be justified in God's sight, who is both reckoned righteous in God's judgment and has been accepted on account of his righteousness. So if you are righteous, you can be accepted on your righteousness. Indeed, as iniquity is abominable to God, so no sinner can find favor in God's eyes so far as he is a sinner and so long as he is reckoned as such. This is why we must choose wisely, because you don't want to stand before God as a sinner. You want to stand before God as a righteous person. Accordingly, whenever there is sin, there is also the wrath and vengeance of God um, show themselves. Now he is justified, he was reckoned in the condition not of a sinner, but of a righteous man. And this reason, and for that reason, he stands firm before God's judgment while all sinners fall. If an innocent accused person be summoned before the judgment seat of a fair judge, where he will be judged according to his innocence, he is said to be justified before the judge. And this is, of course, one of the metaphors um, that is used in the scriptures, even by Paul, this, this idea of a courtroom, the judgment of God, um, that to be justified means to stand before God, to be weighed in the balance, so to speak, and to be declared just, innocent, righteous. So how do we get that? Thus, justified before God is the man who, freed from the company of sinners, has God to witness and affirm his righteousness. In the same way, therefore, he in whose life that purity and holiness will be found 
which deserves a testimony of righteousness before God's throne will be said to be justified by works, or else who, he who, by the wholeness of his works, can meet and satisfy God's judgment. So Calvin is basically saying, if you want to try it, this is option A. You can stand before God on the basis of your own righteousness, on the basis of your own works, and see how that goes. Um, but on the contrary, option B, which is what Calvin is going to recommend, justified by faith, not by works, is he who, excluded from the righteousness of works, grasps the righteousness of Christ through faith, and clothed in it, appears in God's sight, not as a sinner, but as a righteous man. So this is the option of justification by faith, and that Calvin, of course, believes is the only option available to us, because as he's already argued extensively at the the first section of the Institutes, all of humanity has sinned, has sinned in Adam. All of humanity has sinned in their actual lives. All of humanity deserves the wrath and judgment of God um, in and of themselves. Um, so we must grasp the righteousness of Christ through faith and be clothed in it, thus appearing in God's sight, not as a sinner, but as a righteous man. Therefore, we explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And this is how Calvin defines justification. Justification is the forgiveness of your sins, your sins being washed away and wiped clean, not counted against you. It is also the imputation, the reckoning, the crediting of the righteousness, the obedience, of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So not, and that's an important thing of when you think about justification. It's not only um, zeroing out your balance, your, your negative balance, right, all the debts that you owe. It is also the positive gift of all of the treasures of Christ. All of his righteousness are also given to you. I think that is, it's a simple analogy. It's one you've probably heard before, but it's a good one. It's a helpful one. Um, justification is not only God wiping you free of all your millions of dollars of debt that you've accrued through your sin and bringing you back to zero. It is also him giving you all the treasure, all the, all the gifts, all the righteousness, all that Christ has done so that your balance actually goes um, you know, infinitely into the positive realm. Um, that is the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to you. That is justification. Um, Calvin now begins to work through some of the scriptures that teach this. He says, when Paul says that scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, what else may you understand but that God imputes righteousness by faith? It must be by faith. Again, when he says that God justifies the impious person who has faith in Christ, Romans 3, 26, what can his meaning be except that men are freed by the benefit of faith from that condemnation which their impiety deserves? This appears even more clearly in his conclusion in Romans 8, where he exclaims, who will accuse God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who will condemn? It is Christ who died, yes, who rose again and now intercedes for us. And then Calvin paraphrases um, Paul's words and says, For it is as if he had said, Who will accuse those whom God has absolved? Who will condemn those whom Christ defends with his protection? Therefore, to justify means nothing else than to acquit of guilt him who was accused, as if his innocence were confirmed. Therefore, since God justifies us by the intercession of Christ, he absolves us 
not by the confirmation of our own innocence, but by the imputation of righteousness. There's not only the wiping away of the negative, but the addition of the positive, so that we who are not righteous in ourselves may be reckoned as such in Christ. Thus as it is said in Paul's sermon in Acts 13, through Christ is forgiveness of sins announced to you, and everyone who believes in him is justified of all things from which the law of Moses could not justify him. This is the good news of the gospel. What the law could not do, Christ came to do for us. Um, Calvin then goes on to say, you see that after forgiveness of sins, this justification is set down by way of interpretation. It is plainly understood as absolution. It is separated from the works of the law. It is the benefit of Christ, and you see that it is received by faith. You finally see a satisfaction that is introduced where he says we are justified from our sins through Christ, Christ alone. Thus, when the publican is said to have gone down from the temple justified, and where Jesus uses that word in that parable, we cannot say that he achieved righteousness by any merit of works. This, therefore, is what is said. After pardon of sins has been obtained, the sinner is considered as a just man in God's sight. Therefore, he was righteous, not by approval of works, but by God's free absolution. Ambrose has accordingly fittingly expressed it when he calls the confessions of sin a lawful justification. Um, God is being faithful to himself when he does this, when he justifies us, because he is uniting us to his son. He's not turning his head away and pretending like we've never sinned. He's not overlooking our sin. Um, He has dealt with it in the death of his son, and now he is uniting us to him and giving us his uh, resurrected life. His righteous life is imputed to us. Any questions about that before we begin to talk a little more about union with Christ? in relationship to this? Yes, sir. Brian. Uh, Forgiveness of sin. Um, Yeah, that's how I would define it. Yeah, our sins are absolved. They're they're wiped away. Yeah, they're cleansed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else? Any comments or questions about this simple but profound reality, this truth that we hold to of our justification by faith in Christ Jesus? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. I think that we, we have to say both at the same time, that we, we are objectively really eternally justified in Jesus Christ. We trust in Christ. We united in him. That's simply true. And yet you're also called to give an account for your life in the last day for the Lord Christ. You're also called to grow in 
Because, you know, you, sanctification and holiness is becoming what you already are, right? You already are in Christ. You already are united to him. Now you're called to become like him, become what you already are. Um, so I, I, think, I think this is just one of the tensions, obviously, in the New Testament. You see Paul wrestling with it in different ways, in different places. Um, you know, shall we therefore sin so that grace may abound? By no means, right? And why? Because we've been united to Jesus Christ. Uh, because we've been given his life. Um, so, yeah, I, I get the tension, but I think it's something we have to affirm both of those things, that we, are we absolutely justified in Christ? Yes. Are we absolutely called to grow in holiness? Yes. Um, and are it, only the holy shall see the Lord. <laughs> That's the promise that the scripture gives us. So we have to balance those things and hold them, but not balance them, it's not the right word. We have to hold on to both of them at the same time and say them, that they're both equally true. It is. But I think we, and this is one of the dangers. Sometimes the Reformed Church has emphasized justification so much that we have neglected to talk about the real call to sanctification and holiness. Um, and there, we have to, we have to, that is there. It is something we are called to. And justification is the foundation of sanctification and discipleship and the life in Christ. Um, but those things matter too. We need to say that. All right, let me talk about union with Christ. I think this is really important. So Calvin, in the midst of this, this usually I don't think we are trained to think about justification and union with Christ in the same sentence. We think about the images that are used is that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Obviously, that's a biblical image. It's a good one. But sometimes we can have this idea that that means that, that Jesus is over there and we sort of just get lumped in with him somehow and, and his righteousness is somehow sort of shadows and falls on us. And, and uh, union with Christ is really an important thing to think about when you come to justification. Calvin says, I confess that we are deprived of this utterly incomparable good until Christ is made ours. This good meaning justification, justification by faith. If we are to be justified faith, then Christ must be made ours. Therefore, that joining together of head and members, that indwelling of Christ in our hearts, in short, that mystical union. Calvin was a mystic, by the way, right? He talked about it a lot, all the time, um, especially around union with Christ and the sacraments and prayer and other means of grace. That mystical, that mysterious, that's what he means there. It's, it can't be fully comprehended or understood, the union which we have with Jesus Christ. It is a mystical union. These are all accorded to us the highest degree of importance, so that Christ, having been made ours, makes us sharers with him in the gifts with which he has been endowed. If we are to be justified by Christ, we must be united to him. Um, you may have heard, who's, who's sort of the order of salvation, the order salutis? Have you all heard of that, that phrase? All right, the order of salvation is sort of the way in which God works logically um, to affect our salvation. It begins an election, an effectual call, um, then uh, regeneration by the Spirit, conversion, uh, faith, 
um, justification, sanctification, or justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, right? It's the, it's the span of the Christian life. It's the, what we work through um, as believers. This is how we are made right with God. God orders our salvation in this way. Um, there is a logic to it. There's an order to it. Now, where does union with Christ appear on the order of salvation? Everywhere, right? It's not one of the steps. It's the whole thing, right? The whole thing is order. The whole order of salvation can be subsumed under the title union with Christ. John Murray made that argument. He made it eloquently. Uh, I think Calvin would absolutely agree. Um, I think the scriptures agree. And this is something we just have to come back to again and again. Union with Christ is not just one step. It's not just one aspect of the way in which God saved you. It is the way God saves you. There is no other way. Um, justification is important, but it is, a, it is underneath union with Christ. What is the highest degree of importance, according to Calvin? Not justification. Union with Jesus. Justification is something you receive because you have been united to Jesus. And we are deprived of this incomparable good, justification, until Christ is made ours. This mystical union is accorded by us the highest degree of importance, this, so that Christ, having been made ours, makes us sharers with him and the gifts with which he has been made or he has been endowed. We do not, therefore, Calvin says, contemplate him outside ourselves from afar in order that his righteousness, excuse me, in order that his righteousness may be imputed to us, right? It's not as though we look at Christ from a distance and we, we hope that somehow his, his righteousness will reach us or will be accredited to us. And that's, that's one of the reasons I think that bank account analogy is helpful, but it's also sort of cold and impersonal. And that's, I don't love it as a, a total analogy for justification. Because justification has to be seen through this lens. It has to be seen through this lens of union with Christ. We don't contemplate Christ outside ourselves from afar in order that his righteousness may be imputed to us but because we put on Christ and are engrafted into his body, in short, because he deigns to make us one with him. One with him. We must be one with him if we are to be righteous in the sight of God. For that reason, we glory that we have fellowship of righteousness with him. Through Christ, says Peter, were granted to us precious and very great promises that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Second Peter 1, we use this phrase every week in our closing prayer. We use it for this reason. It's an important and fundamental concept. We've been made partakers of the divine nature by the Holy Spirit through our union with Jesus. It is as if we now were what the gospel promises we shall be at the final coming of Christ. Now you are what you shall be. You have been united to Jesus. You've been made partakers of the divine nature. Indeed, John reminds us that we are going to see God as he is, because we shall be made like him, 1 John 3. Um, Calvin then goes on to talk about um, uh, whether righteousness by faith or righteousness by works can be mixed together. I'm going to stop there just for a second though before I get into this. Any questions or comments or feedback about that whole idea of union with Christ and justification? Does that make sense? You guys see that? I think it's so crucial when we think about justification, not merely as some cold, legal or financial transaction that God affects for us, but it is a living and vital mystical thing that has to do with our being made one with Jesus. Yes, sir. It adds life to the discourse of Christ, of abiding with me. Yes. I am abiding with 
Yes. You can't really understand that. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's such that's one of my favorite chapters, right? John 15 on what it looks like to be united to Jesus. Um, what is what is the Christian life? What is the word that sums it up? Abide, right? Abide in Him. Live in the vine. How are you going to bear the fruit of the Spirit? Well, you have to be connected to the vine. You have to abide and live in Him. Dwell in Him. Yes, Ryan, and then we'll go to um, Alexis. Both. Yeah, that's what I would say. And the scripture uses all those images, you know, a, a multiplicity of images to describe justification, I think. And I think Calvin is trying to do justice to that, yeah. It's a washing away of sins. It's a covering of our sins with the righteousness of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He has a great analogy that I'll get to in a second for that. <clears throat> yeah, Alexis. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Christ, Christ said, it's better for you that I go away because I will send the Spirit. And that, that is a fundamental promise he makes there in John 16. Um, and it is so important for us to wrestle with and grapple with that, um, that truly um, uh, it is better for us that we, because it is by the power of the Spirit that he affects this mystical union, um, that he makes it possible for us to be united to him. Yeah. The, the, the Spirit's role is fundamental. All right, let's see if we can cover this in the next... Um, seven minutes or so. So first, righteousness by faith and righteousness by works. Calvin says, but a great part of mankind, and here he largely is thinking, of course, about his, his, his polemic right now, the church in Rome um, that he's responding to. He says, but a great part of mankind imagine that righteousness is composed of faith and works. Let us also, to begin with, show that faith righteousness so dif- differs from works righteousness that when one is established, the other has to be overthrown. It is a logical necessity, according to Calvin. The apostle says that he counts everything as dross and that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own based on law, but one that is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness from God through faith, Philippians 3. You see here both a comparison of opposites and an indication that a man who wishes to obtain Christ's righteousness must abandon his own righteousness. That's a wonderful phrase, a wonderful summary. If you wish to obtain Christ's righteousness, you must abandon your own righteousness. You cannot cling to both. It is one or the other. Therefore, Paul states elsewhere that this was the cause of the Jews' downfall. Um, In Romans 10, that section where he talks about Israel and her rebellion and hardness. Wishing to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Romans 10. If by establishing our own righteousness, we shake off the righteousness of God to attain the latter, we must indeed do away with the former. We must do away with our own righteousness if we are to embrace the righteousness of God. Paul shows this very thing when he states that our boasting is not excluded by law, but by faith. Your boasting is excluded by your faith. For this it follows that so long as any particle of works righteousness remains, some occasion of boasting remains with us. If we can uh, be righteous before God because of our works, and we, that even an, an iota, a tiny bit of that, a, a fragment, a particle of that remains with us, then we can boast before God. But that's not how Paul talks about the gospel. That's not how he talks about the Christian life. 
If faith excludes all boasting, then works righteousness can in no way be associated with faith righteousness. Because of Abram, Abraham, says Paul, was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But he says, yet he has no reason to boast before God. It follows, therefore, that he was not <coughs> justified by works. Then Paul sets forth another argument from contraries. When reward is made for works, it is done out of debt, not of grace. But righteousness, according to grace, is owed to faith. Therefore, it does not arise from the merits of works. Farewell, then, to the dream of those who think of a righteousness flowing together out of faith and works. It cannot be both. It must be one or the other. And you must choose wisely. Let's see. Um, therefore, when, we, um, when Scripture speaks of faith righteousness, it leads us to something far different than thinking about our own works. Namely, it leads us to turn aside from the contemplation of our own works and to look solely upon God's mercy in Christ's perfection. Justification is not about what we have done for God. It is what he does for us and has done for us in the Lord Jesus. Again and again, this is how the scriptures speak. Indeed, it presents this order of justification, says Calvin. To begin with, God deigns to embrace the sinner with his pure and freely given goodness, finding nothing in him except his miserable condition to prompt him to mercy, since he sees man utterly void and bare of good works. And so he seeks in himself the reason to benefit man. The reason God loves you is not in you, it is in him. It is in himself. Then God touches the sinner with a sense of his goodness in order that he, despairing of his own works, may ground the whole of his salvation in God's mercy. Earlier we saw Calvin use this phrase, that the whole of salvation is from God. I had stated at the time that that is as good a summary of Reformed theology as exists. The whole of salvation is from God. Calvin here restates it again. Justification by faith, not by works, is given to us that we may ground the whole of our salvation in God's mercy. All of it, 100%. Every bit of it is found not in us, but in him. Okay. Um, righteous, not in ourselves, but in Christ. This is a wonderful analogy that I'm going to end with that Calvin gives us for what this looks like. From this, it is, he stole it from Ambrose, but it's good. From this, it also is evident that we are justified before God solely by the intercession of Christ's righteousness. You see that our righteousness is not in us, but in Christ, that we possess it only because we are partakers in Christ. We must be united to him. Indeed, with him, we possess all its riches. For in such a way does the Lord Christ share his righteousness with us that in some wonderful manner, he pours into us enough of his power to meet the judgment of God. He pours himself into us that we might be covered before God's judgment. It is quite clear what Paul means, that Paul means exactly the same thing in another statement. As we were made sinners by one man's disobedience, so we have been justified by one man's obedience. To declare that by him alone, Christ alone, we are counted righteous, what is this but to lodge our righteousness in Christ's obedience? Because the obedience of Christ is reckoned to us as if it were our own. For this reason, it seems to me that Ambrose beautifully stated an example of this righteousness and the blessing of Jacob. Think about that for a moment. This is a great picture of how the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, how we are justified. Noting that as 
he of himself did not deserve the right of the firstborn, right? Jacob was the secondborn. He didn't deserve the blessing. Um, he had to go get it. He concealed himself in his brother's clothing and wearing his brother's coat, which gave out an agreeable odor. Remember that, that um, Isaac was blind at the time, and so the, the reason he thought Jacob was, was Esau was because he, he smelled him, because Jacob draped himself in Esau's clothing in order to make himself smell like Esau. Um, and so he fooled his father, so to speak. Um, because he gave out an agreeable odor, he ingratiated himself with his father, so that to his own benefit he received the blessing while impersonating another. Right in that moment, Jacob became Esau, so to speak, figuratively. He became Esau so that Isaac would give him the blessing that he did not deserve. And we, in like manner, hide under the precious purity of our firstborn brother, Christ, so that we may be attested righteous in God's sight. And this is indeed the truth, for in order that we may appear before God's face unto salvation, we must smell sweetly with his odor, with the odor of Jesus. And our vices must be covered and buried by his perfection. I love that image. It doesn't totally hold up right. Isaac was tricked into blessing um, um, Jacob instead of Esau. Of course, the father is not tricked into blessing us instead, you know, instead of Jesus. That doesn't work. You know, the father was in on the whole thing the whole time. Right? It was his idea, um, so to speak. Um, but I love that the, the poignancy of this image, the intimacy of it, um, you know, Jacob dressing in Esau's clothes, making himself even not only feel and sound, but even smell like his brother, that this is what it means for us. We must be draped in Christ. We must take on his odor. We must be united to him in such a way that he, we become him in some sense, right? We become members of his body. We are grafted into him. Um, in order that we may appear before God's face unto salvation, we must smell sweetly with his odor, and our vices must be covered and buried by his perfection. This is the way of salvation. This is justification. It is found in our union, our mystical union, with our Lord Jesus Christ. Any final questions before we close? All right. Something to comprehend and think about meditate upon. You won't run out of things to think about when it comes to union with Jesus. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you that we have been united to your beloved Son, that this is the order of salvation, union with Christ. And as a part of that union, we receive the blessing of justification. Not only that our sins are wiped away and washed away and forgiven, but we are um, made righteous in Christ, that we receive, we are imputed his righteousness, Father, his obedience, his life is given to us. Father, may we be like Jacob. May we cover ourselves with our older brother. May we hide ourselves in him. May we even take on his odor before you. Deepen our union with our Savior, Father, that we might be pleasing to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.